if you will take Jesus Christ seriously, some people are going to think that you are weird. There are people in this community who think I am weird, this church is weird, that, weird, that this church is fanatical because we take this thing, Christianity, so seriously. And if you identify yourself with this church, you may be lumped in with us because it's just not the politically correct thing to do. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Division on the Last Day of the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 53. Today, as we look at the reaction of the people, we will see that there were those who were convinced of Jesus' message and those who were confused. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he concludes. Do you know what a normal Christian life is? Do you know what a spirit-filled Christian is? A spirit-filled Christian is not only an individual who's keen on getting his needs met, but he is keen on meeting the needs of other people. He or she is not someone who just says, God, I want my thirst satisfied. God, I want my needs met. But a person who is truly spirit-filled is a river of revival. He is a supplier of living waters to other people. First to a lost world, but also to the body of Jesus Christ when it is gathered together. You are around people like this sometimes. You can't help but be around and encouraged by their love for Christ and their walk with the Lord. Why? Because they are a river of living water, a river of blessing to you. You say, well, I'm not highly intelligent or overly gifted. You don't have to be for God to use you. If you are willing to be a conduit of God for the glory of God, He will fill you and He will make you a living river of water. But the question I would ask you again this morning is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Of course, when Jesus makes this invitation, He's making a prophetic statement. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now they could believe at that moment if they wished, but the Spirit would not come like a river of living water until the future. John is reminding us that from the reader's perspective, this is still a future event for these people in the first century. It would not happen until Pentecost. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus Christ was not yet glorified. When we come to the 16th chapter, he will say, the Holy Spirit cannot come until I go away. And we'll talk about why that is so when we get there. So that's the invitation of Christ. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see not only his invitation, but the reaction of the people. And what we find here in the remaining verses of this chapter are four reactions that people typically have when the gospel is preached. And the same universal pattern applies to this very day. First in verse 40, in the first part of verse 41, I want you to notice those who are convinced of the message. Look at verse 40, if you will. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Now, what do you mean by the prophet? Well, we've already looked at that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, but let me just stir you up by way of reminder. God spoke through Moses, 
And he said, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God said, Moses, there's coming a time when I'm going to give the people of Israel a prophet like you. He's like Moses in that Moses was a deliverer. He moved the people out of bondage in Egypt into freedom and into new life in the promised land. Likewise, this prophet is coming who is going to bring us out of the bondage of sin into a new relationship through faith in him. Now, who is this prophet? Well, remember on one occasion in John 1, 21, they came to John the Baptist and they said, are you the prophet? And what did he say? He said, no. And so these people knew there was coming a prophet and they're eagerly trying to determine who he was. These people, as they heard the Lord Jesus preach, as they heard his penetrating words, as he gave the invitation, they said, he's the prophet. Others said, a parallel statement, he's the Christ. Because to say he was the prophet is to say he was the Christ. He was more than a prophet because this prophet, unlike Moses, what you did with him would determine what God would do with you. I turn to Acts 3 for just a second. We get some insight on this. This is not on PowerPoint, so go to Acts 3 for a moment. I think it will be helpful to you. Remember, the book of Acts is a record of the first 30 years of church history. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching uh, his second sermon. Pentecost has already happened. Preached the first sermon. Thousands were saved. A few days later, he goes to the temple. A man is sitting there begging, pleading for money. Peter says, silver and gold I have not. But in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the man is instantly healed. It becomes an occasion for another sermon. And beginning here in Acts 3, verse 14, he says of the Jewish people, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Remember that? They said, give us Barabbas. Give us the son of Abbas. And so they took Barabbas and they put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is the Old Testament, that his Christ, his Messiah, should suffer, and he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. That's what is still in the future, the period of restoration when the coming kingdom will come, of things of which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And then he says, notice, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. What is he doing? Peter is connecting Jesus with that prophet that Moses spoke about. For Messiah would be both prophet, priest, and king. And so here are these people, and they recognize this is no ordinary prophet. 
This is the prophet. This is the Christ. These are people who were thirsty, who came to the Lord Jesus, and they believed. They drank. They were convinced of the message. That's the first response. Notice the second response. Not only were those who were convinced about the message, but back here in John 7, there were those who are contrary to the message. Those who are contrary to this message. Look at the middle of verse 41, if you will. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Here we have some people who in their own argumentative way try to say that Jesus is not the promised one. They ask this question, shall the Christ come out of Galilee mocking those who had come to believe? Doesn't the scripture say that he will come from Bethlehem? Yes, it does. But in their unbelief and in their ignorance, they embrace these half-truths, which is what most unbelief does. They are right in their understanding of prophecy. Yes, the Christ will come from Bethlehem, but they are wrong in its application as it comes to Jesus Christ. Had they had just taken the time, had they been willing to know whether or not his word was from the Father, had they just been willing to look at the facts, they would have realized that he was born in Bethlehem, and yes, he was raised in Nazareth, just like the prophet said that as well. But you see, these people knew too much. They thought they knew it all. And they were not willing to examine the scriptures carefully and to compare those scriptures with Christ. And so in their pseudo-scholarship, like so many theologues today, they lead people down the pathway to hell. They're really not thirsty to find the Messiah. We read in verse 43, So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. I love that verse. It's a really great verse. You say, what's so great about it? It tells me that these who believed he was the prophet, the Christ, had not simply an intellectual assent of these facts, but it was a heart truth. They wouldn't buy into the intellectual argument so much so that they were willing to break and divide over this issue. Maybe they didn't understand all the scriptures and all that it had said about the birthplace of the Christ, but they knew he was it. They remind me of the blind man in John 9 who's riddled with questions and ridiculed up one side and down the other. And he says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And so we're told in verse 44, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They would if they could have, but they couldn't because... As we've seen already, he is living on a divine timetable. His time had not yet come. Now, in addition to those who are convinced and those who are contrary to this message, I want you to notice those who are confused about the message. There's a third group who are just scratching their heads in confusion, and they are the temple police. Now, if you remember, we looked at them last week in verse 32, and we saw that they were commissioned by the Pharisees to go and to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. So they go to arrest him, and when they get there, they hear him preach, and they're arrested. They're stopped dead in their tracks as they hear him preach. We read, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they, the Pharisees, said to them, why did you not bring him? It seemed incredible that this group of armed men on their own turf could not arrest this teacher. Please notice their explanation. 
The officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Those words have almost become proverbial down through the centuries. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. It was not that Jesus was a great orator, though he was. It was not simply that the Lord Jesus preached in a, in a memorable way, though he did. It was not simply that he spoke with great authority as the people testified that he did. But when he spoke, he spoke the very words of God. Why? Because he is God. Every word that came out of his mouth was the very word of God, whether it was the Sermon on the Mount or the parables that he gave, whether it was his speaking when he woke with that voice, people out of a dead grave, whether it was answering his critics or teaching his disciples, the very words that fell from his lips were alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so they say, never did a man speak the way he speaks. There are arrested dead in their tracks by the words of the Son of God. Now look how they respond, the Pharisees. They answer them, you've not also been led, led astray, have you? They immediately try to discredit their statement, trying to attack their testimony. And to put some authority to their question, they say in verse 48, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. Has he? Do you see what they're saying? They're trying to remind these temple police, these Levites, how foolish their response has been. They say, look, we haven't believed in him. No one of great importance like us have believed in him, have they? And you guys have? And on top of that, they say, but this multitude, which does not know the law is accursed, all these people who have responded, they don't know the law anyway. They're an ignorant group of common people, easily deceived. There's a curse on them. You're not going to join up with them, are you? These Pharisees refuse to face the truth, honestly. It's easier to label people and to libel people than to listen to people. And by the way, this is always a mark of false religion. There's always some high muckety-mucks up here who say, we are right. We've got a direct channel from God. You can't think for yourselves. You better listen to us. And if you don't agree with us, you're dead wrong. Now, don't forget who these folks are. They're the temple police. It was filled by the Levites. It was a very prestigious position in that day. It's not like a cop in this day. It carried a lot of prestige, maybe like a doctor or a lawyer or a politician. And so he is basically, these Pharisees are putting these men in a position where they have to decide, what are you going to do? Are you going to go with the common people who are cursed, who don't know the law like us? Are those the people you're going to side with? You see, if they come to Christ, they're going to lose face. Now understand. Never in the history of the church has it been filled with the rich and famous, and these men were rich and famous. It was a well-paid job. Never has the church been filled with the rich and famous, the prestigious and the noble, the cultured and the social elites of this world. Remember what Paul said, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's the way God works. God historically, typically uses everyday ordinary people to pull off his plan. And so there are people like these officers who have to decide what are they going to do? Do you know why some people go to certain churches? Some people go to certain churches because all the quote-unquote beautiful people are there. All the movers and shakers are there. But may I remind you, that is not the way God typically orders His church. If you will take Jesus Christ seriously, some people are going to think that you are weird. There are people in this community who think, I am weird, this church is weird, that, weird, that this church is fanatical, because we take this thing, Christianity, so seriously. And if you identify yourself with this church, you may be lumped in with us, because it's just not the politically correct thing to do. Why? Because we are rich, we are poor. We are white, we are black, we are Hispanic, Korean, Filipino, Japanese. We got doctors and trash collectors all mixed together. We place a strong emphasis on the fundamentals of the faith, on the sanctity of the family, on the preciousness of human life in the womb, on the ordained gender roles that God gave. And we're not afraid to talk about holy and righteous living. And the world who wants a form of Christianity without its power may not not find us attractive. That's the, that's the struggle that this elite segment is facing. Now, please remember, Paul did not say, not any noble, not any mighty, but not many. Paul was a noble people. Some of God's chief servants have been incredibly wealthy people. But sometimes men like the Apostle Paul, who made the intelligentsia of our day, they have to be knocked down before they come to grips with who Jesus is. Jesus said that sometimes God will withhold this thing from the intelligent, and he will simply give it to the, those who are like babes, spiritual babes. And so these guards have to decide. Because the Pharisees are trying to talk them out of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of prestige and honor. They're trying to tell them that to embrace Christ is to be identified with the common people. And I would say to you this morning, if you have that same struggle going on in your heart, if you're fighting that same battle, just remember it will be no good to gain all of the world with all of its fame and all of its fortune and in the end forsake your own soul. Now there's a fourth and final reaction. Those who are convinced, those who are contrary, those who are confused, but then there are those who are contemplative over the message. They contemplate over the message. The contemplative ones are not yet sure, but they're open enough to investigate and examine the truth. And Nicodemus is one such example. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before, we saw that in John 3, being one of them, that is a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee. I think it's kind of neat how God inspires the Apostle John to give this example because Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Understand, the Pharisaic leadership of the day are saying, only the ignorant masses 
who don't know the law, the accursed ones, only those folks are embracing Jesus. But none of us, they said. Have any of us believed? Yeah, one of them. Nicodemus did. Who was Nicodemus? He wasn't just a teacher. He was not a teacher of Israel. The article is present in the original. We read in John 3, he's the teacher of Israel. He's a teacher of teachers. It's as if John is saying, wait a minute. There's Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and he's investigating this whole thing. Now, remember, we learned in verse 17, if anyone is willing to do the Father's will, he will know whether or not this teaching is from God. And Nicodemus is willing. Look what he says in verse 51. He's willing to obey God's law. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Of course not. So he's saying, let's listen to what he says. Let's see what he does before we judge him. He's taking Christ's advice to judge with righteous judgment. John 7, 24. Let's think this through carefully. Let's consider his works and his words. Now, we saw in chapter 3 that Jesus was the teacher and Jesus was the miracle worker. And that's what initially attracted Nicodemus to him. In chapter 5, we saw how Jesus pointed to his works as proof that he was indeed God in human flesh. We repeatedly saw how he implored the people to consider both his works and his words because his works authenticated that his words were true. Now, no doubt Nicodemus for some time now had been contemplating and thinking and studying the scriptures after he had had that interview with the Lord Jesus. He was sure that the council was not giving an honest hearing. He was sure that these people had already passed judgment, already said guilty, and wanted to put him to death in an unlawful way. And so he is carefully contemplating and thinking the will of God. You say, did he ever get saved? Yes, he did, thank God. When we come to John chapter 19... It is clear that he's converted as he openly identifies with a small group of people who love Jesus Christ. Yes, he came to faith. Why? Because if any man is willing to do the will of the Father, he will know whether this teaching is from him. Look at verse 52. They answered and said to him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? You can hear the sarcasm and the disdain in their voice. You're not one of those lowly Galileans, are you? If you are willing to defend this Galilean, maybe you're from Hicksville too. They're making fun of him. It's like the city folk making fun of the country folk. They didn't want to hear what Nicodemus had to say. And so they make this incredible statement. Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They are challenging Nicodemus to say, look at the scriptures yourself. It's clear no prophet comes from Galilee. The Living Bible captures this well when it paraphrases it. Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. Of course, in their anger, it's a very weak challenge. And they don't really know the scriptures as well as they boast because Jonah was from Galilee. Elijah was from Galilee. From gath a stone's throw from Nazareth. Nahum was from Galilee. And so was the Lord Jesus. He was raised in Galilee. Now, when I read this chapter of Scripture, I kind of feel sorry for some of the people. His half-brothers, they respond in disbelief. Others, they debate, is he a good man or is he demon-possessed? 
But had any of them been willing to receive the truth, had they acted with sincere obedience, they would have fallen at the feet of Jesus Christ and worshipped him. And I would remind you today that people commit the same blunder. They make decisions about the Lord Jesus Christ without carefully examining the facts. Please don't let that happen to you. Notice how the chapter ends. And everyone went to his home. It was the last day of the feast. It was a feast night. It was like the last day of Thanksgiving. And no one invited Jesus to their home. He went to the Mount of Olives. How about you? Are you going to go home today without Jesus Christ? Or are you thirsty? Are you tired of your sinful, sick life and wanting to come to drink of Christ? Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, I thank you today for your word, which is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who has never been saved. And I thank you that you love them, that Christ died for them, that he took upon himself and his own body there on Golgotha all of our sin, past, present, and future, and was punished for every single one so that he can say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come, let him repent, let him come to me and drink, let him come and believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever will may come. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. I wonder in simple faith, like a child, if you would say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, helpless, but I turn to you today from my sin, and I trust you right now and forever to save me. Would you say that? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will openly, publicly confess you before men. Now, our Father, I thank you for those of us who have met you already. But some of us have become so full of self and so full of pride and so full of sin and so full of the entertainments of this world that we've lost our thirst for the Lord Jesus. We've left our first love. Father, you know I want more of you. I want you to do a deeper work in my heart than you've already done. And I thank you for your promise that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That according to your command and your promise, we can once again allow the Spirit of God to fill us and empower our lives. And if you're here today and you're not filled with the Spirit of God, He doesn't want you to leave today not filled with Him. Get your heart right before Him. Repent of any known sin. Purpose in your heart that you will come and be separate. That you will be different from this world. And that you will allow the Spirit of God to fill you as you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, Father, may we be a church of living water to a lost world. And we ask it to the glory of your Son. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 023. You can also support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.